Would you open your Bible to Psalm 61? We're going to now begin our Summer in the Psalms series. Now, every summer, every summer, what we've done for the past, um, what, what year are we on now? Four, five, something like that? Somebody can do the math later and let me know. Uh, every summer, we've gone through 15 Psalms. We've begun with Psalm 1. And we've made our way through, in order, Psalms 1 through 60 over the last four years. And so this year we're picking back up in Psalm 61, and we'll go through Psalm 75. And for those of you who are new, you can actually go find all of those previous Psalms online if you're really that hungry and you want to hear more about that. Um, But why do we do this? Why do we do this every summer? Um, some, of, some of the psalms feel very repetitive. Some of the psalms that we preach and sing have a lot of the same themes. So why do we do this? Why the psalms? Well, every year I try to give you kind of at the beginning of the series a reason for going over these things. I would, I would be willing to bet, and I'll, I probably don't even have to bet, and some of you are probably saying a preacher shouldn't bet, um, but I would be willing to bet that all of you and those who are not in this room, at some point in your week or in your month, say something to yourself or to someone else, I wish I could pray better. Or I don't pray like I should. And all of you have felt that, I'm sure. And maybe you've wondered, you know, I don't even know how to pray. And the disciples came to Jesus and they told Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. And so he gave them the Lord's Prayer, which is what we just kind of walked through in our prayer today, in our kingdom prayer. But the other thing that God gave us that we often neglect is he gave us an entire book of 150 prayers. These are prayers that God himself inspired. It was written and sung through his people, but given to us to teach us how to pray. And what we see throughout the life of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, is that Jesus actually used the Psalms as a guide to his regular prayer. Jesus prayed the Psalms. So when we pray the Psalms, and when we sing the Psalms, and when we look at the Psalms and read the Psalms, we're actually singing and reading and praying what Jesus prayed. That's pretty neat. That, that, that's a 2,000-year connection that we have to our own Savior. John Calvin, when he was overseeing the translation of the Scriptures into the original language of the people that he was ministering to, the first book that he told people to translate was the Psalms. After I think after translating maybe John or one of the Gospels, he said the very next book, the first book of the Old Testament, I should say, should be the Psalms. That's what the people need. And yet often today, when people go into foreign countries and they translate the Scriptures into the languages, the Psalms are usually one of the last books that gets translated. Do you know why that is? Because grammatically, it's actually one of the hardest to figure out how to translate. But John Calvin saw the need. Why? Why was it so important that John Calvin saw the need to translate the Psalms into the languages of the people? He said, because the life of the Christian is prayer. And we need to know how to pray. 
And so the Psalms teach us how to pray. And yes, this series will sometimes feel repetitive. But I'd be willing to bet that if I sat in on any of your prayer life, it would sound pretty repetitive too. But that's because God shows us regularly what we need to pray for. And whatever it is that we feel in the moment of prayer is what He wants to hear us pray. And so that's what we see when we come to the Psalms. It's not a bad thing to be repetitive in your prayers. But if you ever do feel repetitive in your prayers, the Psalms can help you know what else to pray for and how to pray. So as we come to this Psalm specifically, Psalm 61, what we see at the beginning is that it is a Psalm to the choir master. If you have that in your, if you have your Bible open, a Psalm to the choir master with stringed instruments, and it's a psalm of David. In other words, David wrote this psalm, but he's sending it to the choir master. That's the chenez of their day. And he's saying, sing this to stringed instruments. So um, sing this to instruments that, that are vibrant with life, that you know, communicate a sense of joy and happiness. And sing this corporately. This is a prayer, a song for you to sing in church. So actually, it's pretty cool. We just got to do that, right? So follow along with me in this psalm. It says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I acknowledge before your people that I am not worthy to bring this message because my prayer life stinks. And so, Lord, would you help me as we get back into the Psalms this year to see the power of prayer, but also the power of the one to whom we pray. And Lord, would you teach us to pray as we go back to these prayers that you have inspired through your people by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, help us to learn how to pray as we read your prayers that you have given to your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want you to see this morning as we come to this psalm is that because God is faithful, we can put our trust in Him daily through prayer, faith, and praise. If you have your worship guide, you can flip that over to the back. And what I've done is I've provided an outline for you going through the verses, breaking them down into three points. And what we're going to see in verses 1 through 4 is that this is a psalm of prayer, but this is also a psalm of faith, and this is a psalm of praise. 
David prays, he has faith, and he praises his God because of his faithfulness. And so look at verses 1 through 4. Have your Bible open and we'll look at those, kind of break it down. So 1 through 4, what do we see? David, again, he's teaching the people to sing and pray this. He says, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Now, I would be, again, willing to bet that one of the reasons we don't pray is because we don't think God's listening. We actually don't believe that God is there and He actually cares about hearing our prayers. Whether it's because we don't acknowledge Him to actually be the God He is, infinite and always present and always listening and always loving and caring His people, caring for His people, or maybe it's because we feel like our prayers and our daily concerns are too petty. They're not important enough, or they're not a big deal enough, or maybe we feel like our prayers become repetitive in God's ears, and He gets bored of us. And in all those situations, what God wants to assure us over and over and over and over is that He cares and He's listening. He's always listening. Actually, one of the common themes throughout the Psalms, as you read through them, is the psalmist is continually asking God to listen. Hear my prayer. Hear my cry. Listen to me. Why would he have to put that in a psalm? Because often we don't know if he is. But the Lord wants us to know he's listening. He's always listening to our prayers. So the Lord hears our prayers every time we pray. Verse 2, he says, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. From the end of the earth. What does that mean? That's my pet bird over there. Um, From the end of the earth. What does that mean? It means... I feel distant from you, God. I feel far away. I feel like not only are you not listening, but you're on the other side of the earth. And yet, I'm still going to call out to you. I'm still going to cry out to you in prayer. When my heart is faint, when I feel far away, when I feel distant, when I feel tired or exhausted or drowning or wiped out, Lord, when I feel faint, I'm going to pray and cry out to you. And what am I going to pray? I'm going to pray that you would lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. Now, imagine yourself walking through some wetlands, a swampy area, you know, the place where, you know, you step in and your shoes kind of go, and then when you try to pull them back up, it's like, you know that, you know what I'm talking about, right? We're in the country here. People know what I'm talking about. So you're walking through a swampy area, right? It's muddy. It's thick. Well, if you want to get out of there, if you want to walk on stable ground, where do you need to go? You need to find higher ground. You need to find rocky, higher ground. And so if you're ever feeling faint or discouraged or like life has just got you bogged down, where do you need to go? You need to go to the rock. The one who is higher than you or any of your circumstance. You go to the rock. You go to your firm foundation. And then his prayer is that he would let me dwell. Look at verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent 
forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Another way you could translate that besides tent is tabernacle. Let me dwell in your tabernacle forever. And actually that verb dwell can also be translated tabernacle. Let me tabernacle in your tabernacle forever. And let me hide under the shelter of your wings. Now look at verse 3. We're going to tie that in. What does it say? It says, you have been my refuge. In other words, David's looking back and he's saying, look how the Lord has been a refuge for me. How He has protected me. How He has cared for me. Sheltered me. Based on His faithfulness, I am now asking that He would continue to let me dwell or tabernacle in His tent, in His house forever. Now the tabernacle in the Old Testament was what? It was where God dwelt in, the, in presence with His people. It's where He was present among His people. In the tabernacle. Whenever they moved from place to place, they would take the tabernacle with them in the desert. And that signified, God is with my people. He is amongst His people. They would actually set that tent, that tabernacle up, right in the center of camp, and all the tribes would camp around it. And He would say throughout the New Testament, or throughout the Old Testament, I am in the midst of them. In other words, God is present with His people in the middle. It was a God-centered society. God was the center of all that they did. And whenever it was time to move, they would pack up the tabernacle, and that would lead the way. They would follow the cloud and the pillar of fire that represented the presence of God. When it was time to set up tent, they set up the tabernacle, and the presence, the cloud and pillar of fire would settle right over that tabernacle. The presence of God with his people. And David is now pray, praying, Lord, let me dwell in your tabernacle. Let me be close to you forever. Now, all of this, let me try to give you the Jesus connection. Because we believe that all Scripture, especially the Psalms and all of Scripture, points to Christ, right? In John 1, verse 14... It actually tells us that the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. You've heard me say that before, that that word dwelt actually is the verb form of the word tabernacle. So Jesus, when He came into our world, into the flesh, He tabernacled among us. He tabernacled and lived and dwelt among His people. So a big part of Jesus' ministry coming into our world is that He would live with us, identify with us, become like us in human form. Now why did He do that? Because we were sinful creatures, are sinful creatures, who have rebelled against God our King. Because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from God. So that we cannot be in His holy presence because of our sin. No one can come to the Father unless they are righteous in and of themselves. They are righteous to come before God. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart can come, come to God. That's what Psalm 24 says. So how can David pray 
Let me dwell in your tabernacle forever. Nobody, you can't go into the tabernacle, David. You're a sinner. Not only are you a sinner, you're not a priest. How can David pray, let me dwell in your tabernacle? Well, because Jesus came and tabernacled among us. How can we enter into the presence of God? Through Jesus Christ only. The one who came and lived a perfectly righteous life on earth. Who became the presence of God present to us. Now listen to this. This is cool. If you go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, start reading Revelation 21, it says... Actually, let me just flip there for a second. I didn't have this in my notes, but let's do it anyways. If you want to go to the Revelation 21, please do that with me. <clears throat> Otherwise, I'll just read it for you. Revelation 21 says this, starting at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So David's praying, Lord, let me dwell with you forever. John tells us Jesus came to dwell with us, and Revelation tells us that we will dwell with God forever and eternity, and God will dwell with us. So David's prayer is answered in Jesus. And if we're praying that same prayer, Lord, let me dwell in your tent forever, then he answers that for us through Jesus Christ, his son, who came to tabernacle among us. He also prays, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And maybe that reminds you of a, of a prayer that Jesus prayed while he was on earth. He was up on that mountain. We just learned about the mountain of olives that Jesus would often go to pray and one time when he was standing on the Mount of Olives, he's overlooking Jerusalem. He sees the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I desired to take you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks? You see, David prays, Lord, take me under the shelter of your wings. And Jesus says, that's my heart's desire for you. Don't you see? That's exactly what Jesus wants for you. To gather you to himself that you might be with him forever. So David prays honestly and he's teaching his people to pray. But then David also demonstrates faith. Look at verses 5 through 7. For you, O God, have heard my vows. And then look at verse 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Now, those three verb forms, again, I already said this at the beginning of the sermon. Um, Hebrew, and especially poetic Hebrew, is really hard to translate. But those, those three verb forms, it says, prolong the life of the king. Try to follow with me here. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever with God. Those three verb forms can actually be translated two different ways. One is kind of in this supplication way. May he 
prolong um, might this happen, or it can actually be translated as a definite, which, is, which would be translated like this. You will prolong the life of the king. They will be, he will endure to all generations, and he will be enthroned forever with God. Okay, do you see that? And depending on the translation, like the New American Standard Bible and some of the older Bibles actually translate that as a definite, this, this is going to happen. And this is, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but if I had my preference with the ESV, I would say, you know, let's make this a definite. Let's, let's say David knows this is going to happen. Now, why would he know that? Again, if you know your Old Testament history at all, this would help you. Um, but you can go back and look at the covenant that God made with David. And what was that covenant? The covenant is that I will preserve your throne forever. David, you're going to be the king, and there will never be a day when your son, your heir, is not on the throne. I'm going to preserve the line, and I'm going to keep you in rule forever. That was the God's covenant promise to David, that your son will always be on the throne. So David, again, he's praying a prayer based on God's promise. God, you promised in covenant with me that my son or my line would always be on the throne. So I'm praying, pro-life, prolong the life of the king. May my years or the years of him endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. And God is saying, that's exactly what's going to happen. I am going to fulfill my promise. I will fulfill my covenant. Now, how did he do that? Again, he did that through Jesus. You know, one of the most common descriptors of Jesus that's given in the New Testament, besides Son of God and Son of Man, Son of David. Why? Because that was the title given to the king. In other words, Jesus is the one who came into the world and who is the rightful king. If you look at Matthew 1, the whole point of the genealogy of Matthew 1 is to show that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful king who has inherited the throne. And so when God promised David, your son will always be on the throne, he was talking about Jesus. So if you go again all the way to the end of Revelation, Jesus is still called by that name, the son of David, the one who will reign forever. In other words, God keeps his promises. Always. He's faithful. He keeps covenant. And he will always keep his promises. Steadfast love and faithfulness will always watch over David and his kingdom. Now, wait a second. I know my Old Testament history. There was like this whole gap of 400 years where the kingdom fell. And, and there was no king on the throne of Judah. And David's people were not reigning. So how can you say he would be on the throne forever? Well, because Jesus came to take back the throne. And now no one will knock him off of that place. <laughs> so God did fulfill his promise to preserve the line. Now there's a really neat... Um, story in 2 Kings chapter 11. Uh, 2 Kings 11, there's a, 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 an Old Testament um, story during the time 
of the kingdom of Judah, which is the, the, the tribe of Judah, which continued the kingship of David in that time. It was the family of David. And there's a situation where a woman by the name of Athaliah actually tried to wipe out the entire line of David. Now try, try to follow with me for a second because this is actually a really cool story. There's cool stories in the Bible. Did you know that? There is. There's really cool stories. Um, like action movie type stuff. So there's this, there's this woman by the name of Athaliah. Athaliah is the daughter of King Ahaz. Sorry, King Ahab and Jezebel. Everybody's heard of them, right? Jezebel especially. So Jezebel, you know, some people say the most evil woman, you know, who ever lived on earth. Jezebel married King Ahab, evil king of Israel, which is a separate, tri a separate kingdom from Judah. Um, trying to give you a little bit of Old Testament history here. All right, so Judah, um, the king there was a guy by the name of Jehoram. And Athaliah, the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel, came down from the northern kingdom, the evil kingdom, and came into the southern kingdom and married Jehoram, the king of Judah. That was bad, right? Just a bad decision to marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So let me just tell you that. That was a bad decision. So Athaliah then gave birth to a king by the name of Ahaziah. Ahaziah, however you want to say it. And when Ahaziah died, 2 Kings chapter 11 says this, Now when Athaliah the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jeho There's a lot of great names in the Old Testament. Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom and hid them away from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, that is the temple, while Athaliah reigned over the land. So here's what's going on. See if I can help you out with some, some uh, Old Testament history here. Athaliah, bad girl, um, tries to literally wipe out all of her son's kids. She is killing off her grandchildren. Okay? Why? So that she can rule. So that she can be the queen. But she missed one. Now, here, here's, the big, here's the big part of this whole story. If she had succeeded and killed Joash along with all of the other sons of Ahaziah, the king's line, David's line, would have ended right there. No other descendants. So what we get in this little story of pure evil is a little seed of God's promise. When God said, I will preserve your line, David, and there will always be a son to reign on your throne, he meant it. And even in the midst of the most evil situations, God's promises are true. Do you see that? And so this little Joash actually ends up being put on the throne when he was seven years old. They bring him back when he's seven years old. 
They knock Elias, uh, Athaliah off the throne, and they put Joash in control as a seven-year-old. And he actually reigned for 40 years as king in Judah. So, cool story. Go back. You can read 2 Kings 10 and 11 and see that little story. But what's the point of that? The point is God keeps his promises. He really keeps his promises, even in the midst of the most confusing times. He keeps his promises. He has steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. So Jesus now is the rightful king and the rightful heir to the throne. And he is reigning and will reign forever. So then what's our response? Look at verse 8. Our response to this is, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Now let me give you a little bit more historical background. I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of that today. This psalm, um, commentators most, mostly agree, this psalm was written after David is returning back to the throne. So if you remember anything about David's life, David was king, and then one of his sons actually tried to usurp him, tried to take the throne away from him, chased him out of the kingdom, and chased him to try to kill him for years. And David had to hide away in caves. A lot of the Psalms were written from caves. David's hiding away. And so that whole imagery of God being his shelter and his rock comes right out of the cave. David's writing from caves. And he's saying, God, you are like this cave. You're like this rock. You are my shelter. You are my protector. So David's coming back to the throne. And as he's taking back the throne, what he has to do is he has to say vows. He has to take vows as he's being enthroned back into the place, as he's being coronated back into the place of the king. He has to take vows. Just like when you enter into a covenant marriage, you take vows. You're promising something. When you sign a contract, a business agreement, in a way, that's, you're taking vows. You're saying, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. When I have to come into ministry, I take vows of ministry. So all throughout, all throughout our vocations and callings and wherever the Lord has called us into relationship, we take vows because we're making commitments. So David has to take vows when he comes back into the king's place, into the throne. And he says, I will ever sing praise to your name, verse 8, and I will perform my vows day after day. So what is David saying? What is he saying? Well, actually, if you go to Deuteronomy 17, there's actually a law for the kings. Those who are to be kings in Jerusalem, there is a, a, a routine that God gave them. And he, in verse 14, it says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you who the Lord God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Very practical advice there. But listen to this. He shall not acquire... Um, not that part, but you can listen to that part too. He should not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver or gold. So he's not to take advantage of his position, in other words. But here's the part I really want you to listen to. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a, 
in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So a part of the king's, this is the king we're talking about. You know, the one who's supposed to like rule everybody and be in leadership and make really important decisions. Part of the king's daily routine is to take copies of the scripture and hand copy them so that he will have a copy for himself. This was way before the days of copy and paste, right? Way before the days of, you know, download PDF and print to form and send to Kindle and all that. David and all the kings were supposed to take a copy of the scriptures and write out for themselves a copy and keep it with them and read from it daily. And so when David says, as I perform my vows day after day, that's part of what he's talking about. Lord, when I read your scriptures daily, when I write your scriptures daily, I'm going to sing praise to your name. Why? Because I'm learning more about you. I'm seeing your greatness. I'm seeing your grace. I'm seeing your mercy. I'm seeing your steadfast love and faithfulness. And I've asked you this before, but what was David's favorite verse in the Bible? This is a little bit of um, uh, assumption here. David's favorite verses in the Bible, I believe, uh, were Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. You know what that passage is? That's when God himself describes his own character. And God says, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to all generations, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So David, if you read his Psalms, those phrases pop up over and over and over and over. What does that teach us? It teaches us that our prayer, our faith, and our praises are able to find foundation in who God is and who He has proved Himself to be. In other words, when we understand that God is faithful, when we understand that God is loving and merciful and gracious, when we understand what Jesus has done for us by coming, living among us so that we could live with Him forever in the presence of God, when we really understand these things, our natural response will be to praise Him, to sing to Him, and to pray to Him because of who He is. Do you believe that? It's one thing to get up here every summer and every week in the summer and preach from the Psalms and say, we can do this because we're the people of God. It's another thing to say, God, I really believe you are who you say you are. And I believe that everything you've done was so that I would be able to know that when I come to you in prayer, that you hear me. Thank you. And so you can come to him in prayer with faith because of who he is and singing praises to his name. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. 
Lord, thank you for the Psalms. And sometimes it, it is difficult to read these and pray these. Maybe because we don't feel like our prayers come anywhere close. Maybe other times because we don't quite understand them and understand what they have to do with our daily life. Lord, as we begin this series again, would you teach me and teach us how to pray and show us how these prayers can help us pray. Show us Jesus. Show us that your promises are true and you are faithful. You are a faithful God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.